Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mohscollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Murad Alam from Northwestern University. Uh, Murad is the Vice Chair in the Department of Dermatology. He's the Chief of Cutaneous Anesthetic Surgery and a Professor of Dermatology, Otolaryngology, and Surgery at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Murad, happy Friday and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Thomas. So today what um, we're going to be talking about is your uh, recent article in Lancet Oncology on sebaceous carcinoma evidence-based clinical practice guidelines. And this was published in uh, December of 2019. And what I thought we'd do is sort of approach the podcast in, in two ways. And some of our listeners will recognize um, that we did a similar thing um, last month with Dr. Paul Neem on Merkel cell carcinoma. And the goal here is that I first, um, Murad, want to learn a little bit more about how projects like these come to be. And then since this is not a cancer that any of us really encounter on an all-too-frequent basis, we'll go through some of those management guidelines that you and your team have come up with to, to make sure that all of us as listeners and members of the Mohs College are up to date on how we best manage this um, malignancy. And so I guess starting relatively broadly, why do we need guidelines and, and how did this particular guideline paper come into existence? Thank you. Um, so guidelines are helpful in managing issues in particular that, like you said, are uncommon or rare, where we don't have a built-in mental picture of what we should do when we see a particular kind of patient. In that case, we can refer to guidelines where the evidence has been collated and dissected and some recommendations have been created for us. I think in the context of rare malignancies, we need guidelines perhaps more than with common malignancies for the reasons I said, because such malignancies maybe affect, based on U.S. data, 40,000 people per year, with rare cancers representing over 25% of cancers diagnosed each year and 25% of cancer deaths. But of course, rare cancers can be difficult to study, and there are not that many experts on them. So pooling the requisite experience to provide education, clinical guidance, and such for the cancer community can be more challenging. In particular, you have to identify the key experts that exist. You have to coordinate their busy schedules. You have to make sure that when there's not that much evidence, you're able to collate the diverse viewpoints to ensure that you have an outcome that everyone can agree on. 
And for this reason, while they're important, maybe they haven't been done as much in the past. So NCCN has done a wonderful job tackling guidelines for more common malignancies and more deadly malignancies, but they can't really get into the weeds of every individual rare malignancy. Yeah, that, that's a, a really excellent point. And I certainly find myself going to the NCC guidelines for, for many diseases, but you're right. Sebaceous carcinoma, microcystic adnexal carcinoma, and so on and so forth, aren't always uh, able to be given the, the same degree of attention. Now, for, for this particular topic, was there an index patient that, that brought the, the need to, to mind, or was it simply recognizing a, a gap in the, in the literature that, that um, created this, this project, or, or what was the, the final push for this? I think a bit of both. I think we've all had individual patients that stick in our minds. And I think with sebaceous carcinoma, one of the threads that is throughout the guidelines paper and a way of thinking about it that I think is helpful is that there are almost two different flavors of sebaceous carcinoma, the kind that occurs in the eyelid and the kind that occurs in the rest of the body. And I think we've all had examples of both of those and have seen how diverse and varied those can be. So maybe that was the presumptive clinical impetus. But beyond that, um, as you know, this malignancy can have bad outcomes. And given the limited amount of data, there's some utility in trying to come up with guidelines to reduce those as, as much as you can given current knowledge. Now, for, for those hoping to, to follow in your, in your footsteps for a project like this, and you've already alluded to a little bit, Obviously, you're dealing with a, a, a group of experts here, and can you just walk me through the logistics of really things as simple as communicating um, for a, a guideline or consensus paper, and how does one achieve consensus for something like this? Sure. So the guidelines process, fortunately, has been elucidated and developed in the last few years. I think more than 10, 15 years ago, it was very ad hoc, but now there's some rules that we try to follow. At their best, guidelines are solely based on the evidence at the time, and they're a document that obviously is a moving target and evolves as a result. Um, however, as we indicated earlier, you often do need to also put an expert opinion which is reserved for significant gaps in our knowledge and in the guidelines document is clearly labeled as such. So it's a balance between evidence and expert opinion. You also need to be mindful that what you're writing is not so overly prescriptive that it excludes space for individual judgment. Um, because we do need to recognize that our knowledge is imperfect and also that individual circumstances can vary. The basic process begins with a systematic review or meta-analysis of the literature in the field that is elicited using a rigorous methodology and that involves some statistical review and even a librarian to help you pull the right articles. Then you would assemble representative stakeholder specialty experts, often from a variety of different medical specialties and subspecialties as well as patient representatives. This group would then work to form so-called key questions. What are you trying to answer? And a framework 
that has been determined by the systematic review. And after that, these questions undergo multiple rounds of discussion and adjudication. Specifically, you begin with all of the members going through the questions on their own and seeing how they would best answer them. And then that group gets together to see how collectively they might organize their results with at least one in-person meeting. This results in the thoughts being collated into a refined framework, and then you begin writing the paper. During that process, sometimes more disagreements arise and you have to test the nuances with the group until you have um, a consensus. Now, to your point of exactly how that consensus is achieved, it is a complicated process and it does, on the other hand, have defined ends, which um, we'll get into in just a second. You first begin with rounds of open discussion. People rate comments by themselves, and then they have more rounds of discussion, during which um, the conclusions can be fine-tuned. There are predefined thresholds for what constitutes consensus, because you may not be able to get unanimity. So typically, consensus is defined as 70 to 75% of the participants having a high level of agreement in a Delphi process. Of course, different organizations like NCCN can decide their own thresholds, but we in our process um, with the group that promulgated these guidelines, which is called SISTER, the Committee on Invasive Skin Tumor Evidence-Based Recommendations, we went with 70 to 75%. Okay. Now, that, that's, I think, really helpful for, for people to, to recognize, and, and uh, certainly for those who haven't yet read the actual primary paper that we're talking about again, it's, it's nice to actually see that there is basically a guideline disclaimer that highlights exactly what you just said in terms of the, the way that such guidelines are formed and, and um, also the limitations of such a guideline in recognizing that we all treat individual unique human patients who may or may not fit the guidelines as well as we would like for them to fit. You introduced some topics here that I think are a nice segue into just the the flow of the paper. And the flow of the paper is really very much modeled after how we think about a patient from when they walk into our clinic to when we're doing their last sort of follow-up skin check. And uh, I think in total, you came up with 32 recommendations. And we may not have time to go through all of them, but I sort of want to go through them one by one and and highlight some of the things that, that I find sort of surprising or interesting, and, and maybe you can comment a little bit more on how you felt about those points and how some of these guidelines were already on par with what you were doing in your daily practice, or how your daily practice has sort of evolved based on these guidelines when you encounter a patient with sebaceous cell carcinoma. And so the first guideline, uh, or the first recommendation, I should say, really circles around the the biopsy. And this is intuitive to, to most surgeons that we're doing a biopsy by shave punch or excisional techniques that includes the, the deep dermis in the extraocular variants and uh, more shallowly in, in eyelid biopsies. But 
as you're talking about the clinical characteristics in that section on sebaceous cell uh, carcinoma, I, I'm shocked that we're still looking at a mean time from onset of the lesion to diagnosis of of 1.7 years, which is a good bit higher than for most other non-melanoma skin cancers, save perhaps uh, a Merkel cell. Why are we are we still kind of bad at diagnosing sebaceous cell carcinoma, or what, what's the what's the the holdup there? That's an excellent question. I think with the rare tumors, um, and often if they're small papules that are periocular, they probably just don't achieve a certain threshold of detection where even the patient might not be that bothered by them for some period of time before they manifest. And I think. As we all know, who do treatment of malignancies routinely, the problem with a lot of our malignancies and with sebaceous carcinoma as well is that the clinical appearance is often bland. They often look not much different than a benign papule of some type. And so it does take time. And because these are tumors that we don't see every day, like for instance, a basal cell, which every most surgeon pretty much can diagnose from across the room, I think that's probably a major reason why detection and diagnosis takes longer. In your practice and over the years, what's your sense of who are you receiving most of these cases from? Are they being biopsied by, by dermatologists, oculoplastics, family medicine, uh, academic, non-academic? Who, who's the major referral source for these sort of tumors, do you, do you think? We do get some from oculoplastics and ophthalmology, but I would say we get them from all of the above, all of the groups you mentioned. These are rare. So every now and then, somebody, whether a primary care physician, biopsying it somewhere far away from a big city, an eyelid surgeon, a dermatologist, a non-dermatologist, core physician, somebody comes across this. And I think one of the very important roles of the Mohs surgeon is that we really are the repository of expertise on both common and rare skin tumors. So very often, there is a somewhat circuitous pathway where the person who biopsied this then wonders, what do I do? I'm clearly not the right person for this. And they refer to somebody else who refers to somebody else. And then eventually it gets to the MOA surgeon. So I think um, to answer your question, a variety of routes, but a final common pathway to the MOA surgeon. Yeah, I, that's certainly what, what I've observed in, in my practice. And I think as people who do nothing except cutaneous oncology, we sometimes lose the realization that when these sort of pathology results come into a primary care doctor, for example, the challenge may be as simple as I don't even know which specialty to send this to. And depending on what specialty that is sent to may have significant implications on the rest of the course of that patient when you're talking about tissue sparing nature, highest cure rates. I think that's something we see a lot with DFSPs as well, where if the tumor is not immediately sent to a dermatologist and then the most surgeon, it may travel through very circuitous routes and potentially rounds of, of primary recurrence before it ultimately ends up 
in in the hands of of one of uh, our colleagues. So I I agree with you there. Recommendation number three is about the immunohistochemical profile as well as the histologic nature of these tumors. And I was very surprised that both for the extraocular and for the periocular tumors, there's a relatively high percentage of poorly differentiated tumors. And so it looks like up to 30, 35% of, of tumors may be poorly differentiated. I always wonder if there's a sort of publication bias within that, because that may not be something that's available in the larger studies like SEER or as reliable in the larger studies as SEER. Do you think about grading these tumors in your, in your own practice? That's a good question. Um, sometimes when we receive these tumors with a biopsy from an another place other than our own, we do ask our pathologists to review the glass slides again, just to make sure that the um, diagnosis, the primary diagnosis, as well as comments pertaining to key factors like the degree of differentiation are in fact consistent with the earlier report. I think that's important, not because we mistrust the original biopsy report, but as you said, who knows who biopsied it first, were there dermatopathologists who read it first. So I think it's important to make sure you, you know what you're treating um, from a pathological standpoint so that you can appropriately direct therapy. I do agree with you that there's almost certainly publication bias here, meaning that while we did our best to uncover every case we could find in the literature, extract the data from them and analyze them as a group, Obviously, people will be more prone to submit cases for publication that had an unexpected or, God forbid, a bad outcome. And so probably more poorly differentiated cases are in the literature than would be if we had a true population-based cohort, if we literally had every single sebaceous carcinoma reported into the registry in detail, which we don't right now. Yeah, and I find myself with many of these conversations about tumor outcomes, sort of thinking back to our own striving for a robust tumor registry, because, you know, having worked with, with a lot of the larger tumor registries, there's simple limitations to what we can record and extract. So it'll be very exciting for Mosaic to continue to grow as our own institutional registry and, and give us probably some of the highest quality answer to some of the questions we, we haven't yet answered. Um, if we continue thinking about histology here, um, one more point that I want to make to our, our listeners is that we think about pagetoid spread um, a fair amount when we talk about periocular and, and eyelid sebaceous cell carcinoma. I want to just highlight some, something that, that you all found here because I didn't think of it to this degree, and that is that pagetoid tumors compared to non-pagetoid tumors are certainly more likely to be poorly differentiated, to, to be recurrent, and to require orbital exoneration uh, with a higher risk for metastasis. So I think it's valuable for our uh, colleagues to recognize that, that pagetoid spread is potentially a poor prognostic finding in these tumors. When we talk about risk stratification, um, I'm, I'm going to hand it over to you here, but walk me through some of the things that you consider 
to be high-risk features of such a lesion or of a patient who develops such a cancer? So there are a number of features which we've um, done our best to itemize in terms of things that you should consider. So a, one of the elements is the location of the tumor, the anatomic location. And in this category, the more concerning tumors are the ones on the islet, which have a greater propensity to have higher mortality, higher spread from the site, like distant metastases, than extraocular sebaceous carcinomas. Another feature that we examined was immunosuppression. And interestingly enough, the effect of immunosuppression on sebaceous carcinomas is unclear, but solid organ transplantation does seem to increase the risk by a very large amount. So that is a group in which you might be more vigilant, even though they're probably still relatively unlikely tumors given their rarity in that group. Other immunosuppressed states like lymphoma might predispose, but we're not so sure. Mm -hmm. A previous radiotherapy is another potential risk factor. Mm -hmm. And at least one study reported that radiotherapy may be increasing um, the likelihood. Um, but overall, previous radiotherapy was not linked to an increase in the likelihood of an extraocular sebaceous carcinoma. Pathological features, you described this very nicely. Uh, poorly differentiated tumors do appear to be associated with higher mortality than well-differentiated tumors, and this is a consistent finding. Um, these markers have not been explored as well an extraocular sebaceous carcinoma. So in general, I'd say the thought is we seem to have better conclusions about periocular tumors than extraocular tumors. Now regarding perineural involvement, which is another potential risk factor, um, the effect of perineural invasion or lymphovascular invasion on prognosis uh, remains uncertain because they don't happen that often either an extraocular or periocular sebaceous carcinoma. So it's hard to know what exactly the relevance of this is. So I think that remains a question to be determined in the future. And to a variable degree, these risk factors have, have been incorporated into um, staging system. And so for periocular sebaceous cell carcinoma, we rely on the 8th edition uh, AJCC staging for eyelid carcinoma, which is largely based on tumor size and then essentially looking at the level of invasion as going to the tarsal plate, into the tarsal plate or eyelid margin, and then uh, progressing to, to full thickness eyelid or uh, beyond into ocular, intraocular, or facial structures. When we talk about the extraocular, sebaceous cell carcinoma. Are we currently without a valid staging system? Is that correct? There's no specific staging system for that. So I think you're just generally using your standard staging approaches that you would be for, for um, head and neck tumors. So um, yeah, there's no specific staging system. Arguably, one of the things that to general dermatologists and most surgeons who encounter 
this on their pathology report, uh, one of the things that predominantly comes up is, does my patient need additional evaluation for Lynch syndrome or Muir-Torre syndrome? And what is your answer to that based on location of the tumor and and other risk factors you deem uh, important? Right. So I think the main take-home message here is that if you do feel someone's at risk, um, you can select them for genetic testing using the Mayo risk score. And if the Mayo risk score comes to a certain threshold, then you should consider genetic testing. Now, leaving aside that risk score, if you have a young patient, one who's under 50 years and who has extraocular sebaceous carcinoma, you may consider them um, for tumor mismatch repair protein immunohistochemistry testing, mostly because of their young age. So in general, everybody does not need to undergo screening. Okay. And uh, you just mentioned this, and I found it uh, quite helpful in my practice, the, the Mayo-Murtore syndrome risk score uh, screening tool, which uh, is available in the Genetics and Medicine Journal, and we'll include that in the uh, show notes as well, but it is essentially a point-based system that allows for assessment of a patient based on age, family history, uh, number, and location of, of uh, sebaceous neoplasms, and then gives a probability of this being a, a Murtore-related lesion or not. So I found myself going to that article in, in clinical practice when I encounter the, the tumors, which again are simply not common enough to, to have in the back of my head, but the 2014 article is really quite helpful. More bread and butter, do we need to be imaging these patients prior to surgery? Yeah, you can do imaging. Um, I think uh, if you're going to do imaging, ultrasonography or CT scan can be helpful. Um, But I think overall, for the typical tumors that we see, unless they have a higher advanced uh, stage, it's probably not something we need to do in every patient. I think that's sort of the take home with regard to imaging protocols. Um, they're not, imaging protocols are not very well developed. It should be considered for periocular tumors of stage 2C or higher with poorly differentiated pathology, pagetoid spread, or perineal invasion. But beyond that, I think it's a little bit up to you. If you do have enlarged lymph nodes, they can be sampled by fine needle aspiration or or needle biopsy. And of course, for distant metastases, CT or PET scans can be considered. But I think a lot of it depends on how aggressive the tumor is and how far away from the local basin you think it has spread. And I think on the, along the, the, the same lines, I, I don't interpret your, your article and the data to really suggest that there's any role for, for sentinel lymph node biopsy at this point. It, it reads like the rates both in periocular and extraocular tumors are probably not much higher than, than 1%. And so this is not something that should be routinely done outside of a very thorough 
conversation in, in a tumor board. Since we're on a Mohs surgery podcast, um, let's lump together periocular and extraocular and talk about what the ultimate recommendations are for the management, the surgical management of the of the primary tumor. Right. So there's no big surprises here. Um, margin control techniques such as Mohs micrographic surgery, or as you indicated, sometimes this might go to our colleagues in other fields who might not have access to Mohs. So in that case, something to use a term from NCCN like complete circumferential peripheral and deep margin assessment, which means substantially the same thing, but done by a pathologist using non-MOS techniques. Some margin control technique by intraoperative frozen section or by permanent sections and ANFAS sectioning might, may provide the lowest chance of recurrence. So this is probably the route most of us would go. Wide local excision with adequate margins can also be useful, and specifically, it cannot be compared with Mohs or CCPDMA directly at this time because we simply don't have the comparative data. And that is a limiting factor. I think we all, based on our personal experience, know that Mohs has certain benefits over wide local excision. And I think those are intuitive, both in terms of the likelihood of clearing the margin and in terms of minimizing the amount of unnecessary tissue removal. The way we frame it in the, in the guidelines is we nudge towards MOS or margin assessment, but we do acknowledge that we don't have head-to-head -head trials that really compare that to wide local excision. So if you are going to do wide local excision, you may want to have one centimeter radio, meaning peripheral margins with resectional to the deep fascial plane when you're in an area where this is anatomically feasible. The one thing you don't want to do is radiotherapy as first line therapy. So that is an exclusion that we came up with. Okay, I, I think that's, that's helpful. And, and the way you just framed that whole explanation again highlights how unique dermatological tumors are in that we have great registries and sebaceous cell carcinoma is one of the few cutaneous neoplasms that's actually tracked in the SEER registry. But unfortunately, local recurrence, which more often than not ends up being our primary outcome of interest, is not recorded in these registries. And so I imagine a lot of the conclusions that you uh, came to and the recommendations that you, you made are, are based on probably single center retrospective type, type data. Is that correct? That is indeed correct. And I think you said it very nicely in that even when we have registries, the registries don't always collect all the fields we wish they would. So it's fantastic that the college is moving into this area so we can collect our own data that is complete and hopefully will inform these and other similar guidelines going forward. And our hope is these guidelines and similar guidelines can be iteratively improved as the quality of the available evidence gets better and better. You mentioned that radiation therapy as a primary treatment modality is really off the table. Does it have a role in the adjuvant of, of high-risk tumors? Uh, you know, that's something we debate in 
in tumors even as common as squamous cell carcinoma. So um, do, is there a, a, uh, an answer for sebaceous cell? So that's a good question. And we had a large uh, radiation team to help us answer that question. It seems that these tumors, by and large, are not particularly radiosensitive, rather like squamous cell carcinoma, perhaps. They're not particularly radiosensitive. However, if you do have an advanced problem, let's say you have recurrent disease or something comparable, then potentially you could consider it, but you do need to understand that it's of limited utility. I think that's probably um, the best way to think about it. At some points, you are in the process of throwing everything in the kitchen sink to avoid a further bad outcome. And we've tried to provide some dosing guidance using our um, expert panel of radiation oncologists to, to guide that. And we have a, a little diagram that actually says principles of radiation um, therapy for sebaceous carcinoma. And um, in that, the overall consideration is when radiotherapy is selected, protracted fractionation is associated with improved cosmesis and should be considered, especially for poorly vascularized areas. Contraindications include previous irradiation of the field and genetic conditions that predispose to cutaneous malignancy and radiotherapy should be used with particular caution in patients with connective tissue diseases. And if you absolutely do need to do radiation, you want to consult with a radiation oncologist, if possible, who's familiar with sebaceous carcinoma, given the weak evidence for this modality. And that's probably a, a, a good point there, that the majority of these should probably be managed in a multidisciplinary setting. And I've said it on this podcast before, I think as somebody more recently out of their training, I think there's no better learning environment to sort of progress in your understanding of cutaneous oncology than, than a multidisciplinary tumor board. So I always make a, a plug for that. When all is said and done, how often does the, the panel advise that these patients be seen by their primary dermatologist or, or doctor in follow-up? That's another good question for which, you know, we have extremely little data. So this is a case where the expert panel tried to use their best judgment. We suggested that follow-up in the first three years following treatment be every six months, presumably to have good clinical surveillance of the treated site. And then after that, assuming nothing had recurred and there were no further problems, annual visits or visits tailored to whatever was appropriate for that patient could be considered. Okay. So sounds like that falls pretty close to what we do for a lot of our other more concerning or attention-warranting malignancies. For, for our listeners who, who found the introduction to these guidelines helpful, I do want to just highlight that Murad and, and a group of authors also published a related paper in JAMA Dermatology last year, which was the Evidence-Based Clinical Practice Guidelines for Microcystic Adnexal Carcinoma. And uh, while we're not going to be talking about it today on the podcast, we will include it in the show notes together with the 
sebaceous cell carcinoma article um, because they're probably the highest level and most up-to-date review papers that we have at this point. Um, Murad, I want to be respectful of your time. And so before we close, is there anything else that um, you think we haven't hit on for sebaceous cell carcinoma that you think is, is uh, worth sharing with our listeners? Well, first, I'd like to thank you for really having read this paper so carefully and eliciting all of the important data from it. So thank you very much for that. Um, the only thing that I think we might want to consider, given that radiation isn't terribly useful, is that while not much has been done on immunotherapies for this malignancy, it's certainly possible that targeted therapy like PD-1 therapy or targeted therapy using retinoid receptors may be of some utility in advanced sebaceous carcinoma. And I could only reiterate again what you said a couple of times already, which is that these really are best managed, these advanced cases in particular, by a multidisciplinary team. And hopefully, especially on that topic, more to come in in future iterations of the guidelines as our literature continues to, to grow. Murad, I really want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, as always, thank you to our listeners for their attention. Um, the articles will all be in the Mose College Reference Library accessible through the ACMS website. Please uh, share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Uh, in this instance, potentially also your oculoplastics and ophthalmologic colleagues. Uh, and, and let us know uh, at the ACMS how we're doing and who you'd like to have on the show by contacting us at info at uh, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery. <laughs>